morning. What a joy, beloved, to be with you this morning. You know, as I stand behind this pulpit, I'm reminded that all men are created equal. This church was built for much younger man, much taller man, and a man with greater vision. That is the smallest clock I've ever seen in my life. But I have my wife. She's going to remind me that I need to stop. I almost need a booster seat or a booster, but that's all right. I'm going to have traverse throughout the, uh, the stage here. Let me get myself set up, beloved, as you um, hopefully come prepared to continue uh, this wonderful time that God has granted to us in his word as we contemplate what makes for a biblical church. What are the essentials? What are the pillars? What are the tenets of what makes a biblical church? In other words, if a church uh, considers themselves biblical, what are the essentials that deem them biblical? What are the pillars? Last night, we began by looking at the importance of having a high view of God, a proper view of God. And then uh, Pastor Brian continued by Uh, teaching and explaining to us how a high view of God must obviously lead to having a high view of Scripture. Now, it ought not to be surprising to you that if you have a high view of God and a high view of Scripture, then we must also have a proper view of man. And I hope you also realize that it's all interrelated. Do you see that? If you have a high view of God, you're going to have a high view of Scripture. And if, I have you, and if you have a high view of Scripture, you're going to have a correct, you must have a correct view of man. They're all interrelated. You can't have one without the other. If you do not possess a high view of God, a biblical view of God, if you do not possess a biblical view of his word, you are guaranteed, my friends, you are guaranteed to have an incorrect view of man. This morning, my topic has, has been assigned to me as the church's anthropology, or what is the church's view of man or mankind? Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines anthropology as the science of human beings. That's pretty simple. Second, it defines it as theology leading or dealing with the origins, nature, and destiny of human beings. That's a little bit closer to what we are interested in. Now, Dictionary.com listened to their definition. They define anthropology as the science that deals with the origins, physical and cultural development, biological characteristics, and social customs and beliefs of humankind. Secondly, Dictionary.com defines anthropology as the study of human beings, similar, human beings' similarity to and divergence from other animals. Now... What is one told to do if one wants to learn about the origins, nature, and purpose of humanity? They tell you, take an anthropology class. Go to the community college, go to university, or simply just go on YouTube and, or Google. Now, when one does this, what will one be taught 99% of the time? That human beings... And everything else came into existence by chance after a big explosion that throughout, and that throughout billions of years, all organic matter 
has evolved into the different life forms we see today. Through natural selection, some life forms remain amoebas, whereas others evolved into more complex forms, the highest being human beings for now. What do the psychological and, 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 and uh, philosophical experts tell us about the nature, purpose, problems, and solutions of these highly functioning and evolved amoebas, also known as human beings? What do they tell us? Well, Sigmund Freud, representing the psychoanalytic perspective, he believes that human beings by nature are driven by unconscious desires and conflicts. He viewed the purpose of man as the fulfillment of basic instincts and drives, which, other involve, which often involve resolving conflicts from childhood experiences. B.F. Skinner, representing behaviorism, suggests that human beings or human behavior is shaped by environmental factors, mainly through the inner reinforcement and punishment. This view, this view implies that the purpose of man is to adapt and learn based on rewards and consequences. You know, just like you train a dog. Abraham Maslow and Carl Rogers, representing a humanistic perspective. Humanism emphasizes the innate goodness and potential of self-actualization in all humans. It sees the purpose of man as achieving personal growth, self-fulfillment, and realizing their full potential. Next, let's briefly look at existentialism as presented as by John Paul. Here, I looked up uh, the French pronunciation. It's pretty interesting. It's Sertre. Look it up. It's interesting. Existentialism teaches and explores the idea that humans are responsible for defining their own purpose and meaning in life. It suggests that the nature of man is characterized by freedom and choice. Now, if we were to summarize these, what can we deduce from these experts, psychological and physi physiological, um, uh, philosophical, philosophical, philosophical experts? What can we deduce from them? Number one, that humans are highly evolved organisms whose purpose is to fulfill their unconscious instincts and desires. That humans are innately good, have the potential for self-actualization, and are responsible for their own purpose and meaning in life. And that human behavior is shaped by environmental factors, mainly through reinforcement and punishment. Now put these all together and you arrive at the prevalent view of humanity in the world, which is that mankind is innately good and that they do, and that what they do or don't do is a product of their environment, thereby relieving them from any accountability. These make their own way and self-actualize as they seek to fulfill their unconscious instincts and desires. Beloved, you don't have to be a trained a theologian to realize that the world's anthropology is inconsistent with God's word because God's word tells us about mankind, the origin and nature and destiny and problems and solutions. And what the Bible teaches us is contrary to what the world believes about itself. 
Therefore, a biblical church must possess a biblical view of the origin, nature, destiny, problems, and solutions for mankind. Now, let me say this. To arrive at a biblical view of mankind, one must possess a biblical view of God and his word, which were obviously addressed yesterday evening. And as I already mentioned, these are interrelated. If you have an unbiblical view of God and his word, you're guaranteed to have an incorrect view of man. Now, to establish the anthropology of a biblical church, said anthropology is built and derived from our understanding of God and his word. Any other anthropology that arises outside of the proper knowledge of God and his word is incorrect. Therefore, this morning, beloved, I want to cover with you all five essential views of man that a biblical church must hold. Five essential views that a biblical church must hold. In other words, if a biblical church considers themselves biblical, they must hold to at least these five essential views on man. The first is this, the origin of man. The origin of man. Where did we come from? Now, you are trained theologians. When looking for answers as to the origin of man, where does one go? It's really easy. We go to the book of beginnings. Let's go to the book of Genesis. That is an excellent place to start if you want to know where we came from. In Genesis chapter 1, we see that God created. We see that in day 1, he created light. In day 2, the atmosphere and the firmament. In day 3, dry ground and plants. In day 4, sun, moon, and stars. Day 5, birds and sea creatures. In day 6, land animals and humans. Now, I want you to draw your attention, if you would, please, to verse 25 of chapter 1. And follow along as I read to verse 27. God's word says that God made the beast of the earth and their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing of the ground after its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Jump down to verse 27. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So when we're thinking about the origin of man, we see that, number one, that God created man. He said, let us make man, and man came to be. Also in Genesis chapter 5, verse 1, we read this. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Now, the two Hebrew verbs here in these passages speak of God's divine action in making or causing to be or become. The term father, as in God the Father, speaks of the act of begetting or originating, as we find in Job chapter 38, verse 28, which says, Has the rain a father, or who has begotten the drops of dew? Now, beloved, with this understanding, listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 8, when he says, 
But now, O Yahweh, you are our father. We are the clay, and you are a potter, and all of us are the work of your hand. Psalm 139, verses 13 through 15. For you form my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well, the psalmist says. So you get the point, beloved. There's no need to belabor it. Man came from God. Man's origin is God himself. Therefore, any anthropology that claims that human beings are the result of random chance over billions of years of evolution, as in the, uh, as in the saying, from the goo to the zoo to, the, to you, is unbiblical. Just as any of you that rejects a direct and personal creation of every human being by God's divine and willful act of creating. Now, the understanding that we have been originated by God points to other aspects of our human existence, such as our identity, our identity. Identity defined is the distinguishing character or personality of an individual. And boy, is that a hot topic today or what? When it comes to identity. People are searching for their identity, their real and true identity. The tragic part, beloved, is that many of these folks look in the wrong places to find their identity instead of looking at what God clearly says in his word and accepting how God made them and the identity that God provided for them. Again, please draw your attention to verse 26 and 27 at Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Verse 27, and God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. The Hebrew word translated image basically refers to a representation or a likeness. In fact, Moses also uses the word likeness in verse 26, which speaks of similarity in appearance, character, or nature. Now, we know that God is spirit and does not possess a physical body. So how are we, as his divine creation, made in his image and likeness? Man is the image of God by virtue of his spiritual nature and not his physical nature. We need to understand that every human being has been created in God's non-physical image with some of God's non-physical traits, as helpfully outlined in MacArthur and Mayhew's Biblical Doctrine, which points to man reflecting God in four ways. Number one, volitionally. Man has a will and the ability to select between various choices. He can discern right from wrong. This volitional aspect separates man from the animals and other creatures mentioned in Genesis 1 and 2. Secondly, man has been created with intellectuality. In other words, man has rational mind. He's aware of himself, his environment, others, and God. He can think critically and logically. He possesses memory, imagination, creativity, and language, skills for communicating and understanding the thoughts of others. Third, emotionally. A human experience experiences a wide range of emotions and feelings, such as fear, anger, guilt, anxiety, regret, shame, happiness, joy. He can both laugh and cry 
Also, human emotional, emotionality is complex as people can experience two or more emotions almost simultaneously, which makes being a human being pretty interesting, isn't it? What's wrong, sweetheart? I don't know. Are you happy? Yes. Are you sad? Yes. What is it? Both. We are complex individuals. Lastly, relationally, man is equipped to participate in relationships with God and with other people. Jesus said that the greatest commandment are, are commandments, the greatest of the commandments are to love God and to love others. Only persons can give and receive this type of love. Now, even though mankind has been created in God's non-physical image and likeness, it is obviously important to God that we know that he created human beings as either male or female, which is part of their identity. Now, some may argue, Pastor, you just said that mankind has been created in the image of God by virtue of his spiritual nature and not his physical nature. A person's identity is more than their physical attributes. So why emphasize the physical aspect of a person's identity as either male or female? To which I would answer, I am not emphasizing the spiritual aspect or the physical aspect of a person as either male or female as the ultimate determiner of their identity. Of course, a person's identity is more than their physical attributes. But, beloved, at the same time, it is not any less than how God created them physically. What I'm doing is I'm simply pointing to what God says is part of a person's identity as each person has been created in his image and likeness. I did not put the words male and female. He created them in the Bible. God did. And you know, the sad part is that 30 plus years ago, no one would ever challenge that. Nobody. It almost seems unnecessary that God would state in his word that he created human beings as either male or female. I mean, you, you could imagine, Moses, why, why did you put that? God created them. Oh, by the way, Male and female, he created them. That's obvious. Why would you even put, why is that even necessary? Boy, did God know? He knew that the fundamental realities of creation would be questioned at some point, so he said plainly, there are only two genders. It is sad and outright absurd that we must pause and make a point of this truth in our day. You know, when it comes to our identity, we are not only creating the image of likeness of God, but we are also purposely created as one of only two genders. Every human being born is either a man or a woman. Yes, we know that physical abnormalities exist due to the fallen nature of our world, but empirical Chromosomal evidence points to only two genders, male and female. Any church that would entertain any other view of gender, any view of gender separate from the clear teaching of God's word is not biblical. It's not. Again, pastor, you don't understand. Gender is more than just physical traits. Gender is fluid. It's more complex than that. No, it's not. It's not. Absolutely it's not. God says that he created mankind in his image according to his likeness. Male and female, he created them. That's it. There's no point in belaboring the point nor even arguing about it. That's what it says. Beloved, 
We have a high view of scripture because the Bible is God-breathed and therefore infallible and inerrant and authoritative as our standard for knowing the truth. And what does the Bible say? It tells us that the origin of man is God, the creator of heaven and earth, in whose image and likeness all human beings are made, and in whom all human beings have their identity as either male or female. And not only that, but as every human being has been created in the image and likeness of God, they not only have identity, but get this, also very important, every human being then also possesses intrinsic value and dignity. Intrinsic value and dignity. Kiel and Dillich are correct when they say that being made in God's image and likeness proclaims at the very outset the distinction that and preeminence of man above all other creatures of the earth, close quote. Therefore, when someone says humans are highly evolved animals, we reject it because such notion disparages God's image. How dare you call an image bearer some ape's relative? When anyone values plant or animal life as equal to or greater than human life, they possess an unbiblical anthropology. Now, that doesn't mean that mankind as created above every other creature on earth is to devalue or mistreat plants or animals. The Bible tells us that everything God created, he saw and it was good. Everything that God created has purpose by his divine design and by virtue of God creating human beings. Last, please note, it is clear that everything that God created before he created human beings was so that creation would bless and sustain human life. It's not by accident that God created human beings last. And everything before humans, he created before that so that when human beings came, they were able to be Successful and blessed. How much does God value human life? Well, listen to what he says in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man's his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he has made man. Leviticus 24, verse 17, 18, and 21. If a man strikes down the life of any human being, he shall surely be put to death. And the one who strikes down the life of an animal shall make restitution for it, life for life. Thus, the one who strikes down an animal shall make restitution for it, but the one who strikes down a man shall be put to death. Why is God so concerned that he would institute the death penalty when a person's life is taken? Why does God not require the death penalty for killing an animal? Why does God say in Genesis 1.29, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has the fruit of the tree yielding seed, it shall be food for you. God says this, beloved, because of man's distinction and preeminence above all other creatures of the earth. Why? Because we are the only ones who have been created in God's image and likeness. Neither plants nor animals bear God's image. Listen to what the writer of Ecclesiastes says in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 21, where he says, Who knows 
that the bread of man ascends upward and the breath, or, or who knows, that the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of a beast descends downward to the earth. Is he disparaging animal life? Is he being mean? No, he's just saying humans and animals are completely separate. Are plants and animals essential and valuable? 100%. Of course they are, but not more nor equal in value to human beings. Hence the absurdity, beloved. Hence the absurdity of a group of seminarians at Union Theological Seminary during a student chapel in 2019, confessing and repenting before plants. Their statement on social media read, today in chapel, we confess to plants. Together, we held our grief, joy, regret, hope, guilt, and sorrow and prayer, offering them to the beings who sustain us, but whose gifts we too often fail to honor. What do you confess to plants in your life? Union. Uh, not to be surprised. At a student chapel, they put plants, and students repented, confessed, and repented. What nonsense. What do you confess to the plants in your life? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. We water them and tend them so that they will continue to produce oxygen and fruit and vegetables and pretty flowers for human consumption and enjoyment. We don't confess to them. We water them and we eat them. That's what we do to plants. That's what God designed them to be, what we're, we're to do with them. Therefore, beloved, a biblical anthropology informs us that we must value human life above all other life forms. That is why when one weeps over abandoned or mistreated puppies, you know, when those SPCA commercials come on, when one weeps over abandoned or mistreated puppies or elephants or whales, when one cries over the meat aisle, Ridiculous. At the supermarket, agonizing over the slaughter of cows for human consumption. When one cries over the use of animals in medical trials but fails to shed a tear. Or bat an eye. over the slaughter of babies through abortion, or grieve over the thousands upon thousands of frozen human embryos who will be destroyed if not implanted in a womb, or cry out against the evil of euthanasia. Said person has an unbiblical anthropology and any church that does not challenge nor seek to correct this misunderstanding also possesses an unbiblical anthropology. There are institutions, let's not call them churches, that care more about you adopting a puppy and about your recycling that care about the destruction of human life. For they call it a choice. 
any institution that calls themselves a church that does not challenge and correct that unbiblical worldview does not deserve to call itself biblical. Therefore, a biblical view of origin of man is the first essential view of man that a biblical church must hold. Now let us quickly move on to the second essential view that man of man that a biblical church must hold to, and that is the purpose of man. The purpose of man. Why are we here? Well, let me give you the short answer and then proceed to elaborate briefly. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 6 and 7 says, I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. Beloved mankind, you and I have been created to fulfill the purpose of bringing God glory. That is, in essence, our ultimate purpose, to bring God glory. Now, as we unpack this a bit, we must keep in mind that the purpose of man cannot be separated from the principle of being created in God's image and likeness. Unlike plants and animals, humans are like God in that we are self-aware, possess high levels of reasoning and intellect, know right from wrong, and are hardwired with the ability to learn and use complex language. No plant, nor animal, not even a highly trained dog, ape, or dolphin is capable of these at the level of a human. Again, this is because mankind and mankind alone has been created in the image and likeness of God. This also means that mankind was created with abilities comparable to God's abilities in thinking, knowing, communicating, ruling, although, obviously, not to a divine degree. Let's start by looking about uh, God's command for man in having dominion or rule over the earth. This we see in Genesis still. We're still in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness so that, you see that? That's a purpose statement. So that they will have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. To have dominion means to rule to exercise authority over as of nations or other entities, even natural ones like animals. That's why the verse continues by stating, over fish in the sea and birds of the sky and over cattle and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now in verse 28, God adds another description of what man is to do by saying that man is also to subdue the earth, right? We see that in verse 28. God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion. To subdue means to make subordinate, to make dependent or subservient. God created mankind in his image and likeness to rule and to subdue the earth on his behalf as his representative. Collectively, mankind. Mankind, therefore, is created as male and female with their God-given attributes and abilities of reason and communication, which makes them ideal They are ideally suited for ruling and administrating the earth God created. The psalmist captures this beautifully where in Psalm chapter, Psalm 8, verse 6 6 to 8 says, "You you make him rule over the works of your hands. We sung this, a beautiful rendition of Psalm 8, by the way. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, all the animals of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. 
Psalm 115, 16. The heavens, are the, 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 the heavens are the heavens of Yahweh, but the earth he has given to the sons of men. Now, if you jump down to Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, here we find yet another example of man's purpose and responsibility as stewards over God's creation. Genesis 2.15 says, Then Yahweh God took the man and set him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. So what we see here, beloved, is that Adam was to steward God's garden by cultivating and, to keep, and keeping it. Verse 19, jump down. Chapter 2, verse 19. And out of the ground, Yahweh God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky, and he brought each to the man to see what he would call it, and whatever the man would call the living creature, that was his name. So we also see that God chose man, not because God couldn't name the animals, he was extremely capable, but that responsibility he gave to the ruling, his ruling representative, mankind, to do it. Adam had been created in the image and likeness of God, and therefore possessed intelligence and the ability to communicate with God, and soon with other human beings. So, to what degree did Adam communicate with animals? I have no idea, but I know this for sure, the beasts knew their place, they didn't eat Adam. So they knew their place. Now, what else was mankind to uh, created to do? We see this in, still in Genesis, to be fruitful and multiply. Go back to verse 28 of chapter 1. Given that God created mankind as male and female, look at what God commands. God blessed them and God said to them, if you have time. If you're not too busy. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Beloved, mankind's primary purpose is to be in glory to God. And here God says that they are to be him glory by multiplying and filling the earth with more image bearers. What a joy, beloved, to welcome new image bearers. It blesses my heart to see all these little image bearers in the nursery. It's just wonderful. Don and I have four uh, children, three grandsons, and in January, God willing, we'll have our first granddaughter. Donna and I have done our very best to ensure that our children know why they were created and that their primary purpose in life is to glorify God, their father, and that they need to ensure that their children also learn their primary purpose for existing, which is to glorify God. Now, beloved, it should sadden us that the birth rate, birth rates are declining tremendously, mainly in industrial countries such as the UK and the US. This is not good. Even secular economists tell us that declining birth rates will cause significant problems in the future. It's math, for one. Yet, that's not why Christians should be concerned about declining birth rates. Our concern, beloved, is that the mandate to be fruitful and multiply is being ignored by many who can physically have children. Indeed, the Bible doesn't tell us how many children to have. But, beloved, may, may, I, may, may I just share something? Disclaimer. This is not in Scripture. Okay? Disclaimer. May I share just my uninspired thinking on this? If you have two children, you basically replace yourself. If you have three or more now you're multiplying. <laughs> this is the philosophy we use with our children. 
because Nana and Papa want many, many grandchildren. <laughs> that is not in the Bible. Okay, so don't, okay. The Bible doesn't tell you how many kids to have, but I think it'd be interesting to think that um, children are an option. And of course, they are, but are they? God states that the one of the pur- that one of the purposes creating mankind is to multiply and fill the earth with other image bearers. Now, beloved, before leaving this topic, please note that God's intention for how a husband and a wife are to go about being fruitful and multiply. Verse twenty-four of chapter two: Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So, interestingly, just in case you were wondering, God created you to one day leave mom and dad and cleave to your spouse if God is giving you the gift of marriage. Now, moving on. Not only is mankind to rule and steward God's earth, but we are also to be fruitful and multiply. And third, we glorify God by our obedience to him. So God created us to rule, to be fruitful and multiply, and notice the third part, to obey. To obey. Draw your attention to Genesis 2:15 and 17. Then Yahweh God took the man and set him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate and keep it. And Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may surely eat, but from the tree of the garden of good and evil you shall not eat from it. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. And again, I like what MacArthur and Mayhew say in Biblical Doctrine when they state, As a creature, man is obligated to submit to God. Man is not free to do whatever he desires. And if his actions, as if his actions have no consequences with God. Close quote. Beloved, mankind was created to glorify God. How? By obeying him. Even though mankind was created in the image of God and likeness of God, man is not God. Man is a creature created by God and therefore must be subject to God. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 9, verse 20. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Will the thing molded say to the molder, why did you make me this way? No, beloved, man is the clay, God is the potter, the clay obeys the potter. It's just as simple as that. Now, as to the motive for man's obedience, please note that man's obedience is in line with God's care for his creatures. In Genesis 2, 15 and 17, we see that it, it, it does not portray a malevolent dictator forcing his will upon a poor subject or unwilling subject. The command of God to Adam was for Adam's own good. God therefore demonstrates his love for Adam by seeking to protect Adam and his family from evil that existed but was not supposed to be experienced by Adam. Oh, beloved, how important it is for us to remember this principle. God allows and prohibits certain things, and he does so for his glory and for your good. Far be it from us to think that God prohibits us from doing anything that would not be good for us. Now, the problem is that we are often deluded into thinking that certain things are good for us when in fact they are detrimental. A little food is good, more is better. Little money is good, more is better. Physical intimacy with one's spouse is good. God commands it, that more is better with more people. Of course, this thinking is real because of the fall, which we'll address now. But again, the point remains, mankind was created to glorify God by obeying God. And know this, every person, whether believer or unbeliever, will ultimately bow down in obedience to God, no matter what. 
Why? Because that is the purpose for which, for which mankind was created. Therefore, a biblical church holds a biblical view of the origin of man, a biblical view of the purpose of man, and third, they must possess a biblical view of the nature of man. And here's the question, why does man fail to obey God? If God created man to obey him, yet man doesn't, why does man, why, what is it in man that causes us to fail to obey God? Now, as we look at this, another aspect of man being created in the image of God is that man was created with volition. As I quoted earlier from biblical doctrine, man has a will and the ability to select between various choices. He can discern right from wrong. This volitional aspect separates him from the animals and other creatures mentioned in Genesis 1 and 2. Volition is a beautiful thing, beloved. But when it's misused, it's catastrophic. Why does man fail to obey God? Well, first, because mankind chooses their desires over glorifying God in obedience. Look at Genesis chapter 3, and I'll just summarize verses 1 through 5. They were tempted by the enemy. Look at verse 6, and the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was delight to her eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise, so she took from the fruit. She gave it to her husband with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were them, of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed feet, leaves together, and made themselves loin coverings. Here we see, beloved, that the gift of volition, part of which separates us from other of God's creatures, was used to please man rather than to glorify God. This is where sin entered the perfect world God created to administrate and to populate. Hence, from this point forward in chapter 3, the reason mankind fails to glorify God in obedience is because of mankind's sinful nature. Whereas God's creation was perfect, including mankind, because of their willful defiance to God's command, sin entered the world. With sin now in the world, everything would change. Whereas nothing died in God's perfect creation, all living things would begin to die and all non-living things would begin to decay. Now, although man would continue to be God's image bearer, from this point, God's image in man would be marred by sin. Sadly, like all actions have reactions, choices have consequences. Let's briefly look at those consequences. It's chapter 3, verse 16 and 24. There are consequences. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in conception. In pain, you will bear children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then Adam said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you, and pain you will eat it, and all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles will grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So, consequences of sin, based on Genesis 3. Pain, pride, cursed land, hard labor, struggle to survive, physical death. And worst of all, beloved, worst of all, is that they were separated from God. Because shortly after this, we're told that they were kicked out from his presence. From this point on, all of Adam's and Eve's progeny will be born under the curse and effect of sin. The Apostle Paul puts this plainly in the book of Romans where he says in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death separated all men. Why? Because all sinned. Beloved, this means that every human being from Adam and Eve, born 
is born a sinner and separated from God, even though they are an image bearer. Now, though I mentioned some of the effects of the fall described in Genesis chapter 3, what are the consequences for sin do we find in Scripture? First, we find that sin enslaves. Sin enslaves. Titus 3.3, 3, for we ourselves once were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. John 8.34, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Now, one of the horrible consequences of sin is that it is addictive and destructive spiritually, physically, and emotionally. Second, sin is the foundation of conflict. Think about that. James chapter 4, verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? It's not the source of your pleasures, the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? Of course it is. Third, and perhaps most ignored consequence of is ultimate judgment. You don't hear that anymore, even in, by, by institutions that claim to be churches. That God is going to judge sin is nowhere to be found in some of these institutions. But yet, I suggest to you, is the worst of all consequences of sin. Paul to Timothy, he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Beloved, let us not forget the most dreaded judgment found in Revelation chapter 20. Where John in verse 11 through 15 says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sits upon it, from whose presence the earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. Then I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which they were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And the death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Their death, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Beloved, sin has consequences. And the church is responsible to remind the people of the consequences. That is, a church that possesses a biblical anthropology, that is. So what does the Bible say about the nature of man compared to the modern psychology and, and, and philosophy of the day? Well, again, behaviorism, humanism, all those are just excuses. You're innately good. You're okay. You can self-actualize. You don't need anybody else. You, in essence, are telling you, are your own God. You don't need anything or anyone else. It's sad that even some institutions that call themselves churches reject not only the reality of sin, but even the reality of hell, completely discounting what I just read to you out of Revelation 20. Hey, if a man is innately, if a man is not innately sinful but innately good and since hell doesn't exist then Paul as Paul warns in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 32 if God's word is not true let us eat drink for tomorrow we die is this not the prevailing view of the world today of course it is these are not biblical views of mankind and therefore they must be rejected so we've outlined we've outlined the biblical what a biblical church must hold to as they hold to a biblical view of origin of man, the biblical view of uh, the, 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 the purpose of man, a biblical view of the nature of man, and fourthly, they must hold to a biblical view 
of the destiny of man. Now, there's only two places, so this point is going to be really short. What is man's destiny? You've got to remember that as image bearers, as we've been created in the image of God, image likeness of God, as such, we have been created as eternal beings. We're not finite beings in our essence. In our physical, yes, at, the, at this point. But God created us with eternity in mind. You know, one of the most frustrating things in life, whether personally or professionally, is not knowing where you're going. Try buying an airline ticket without inserting a destination. It won't work. Go to a bus station, ask the clerk to give you a ticket. The clerk will ask you, where do you want to go? And you say, I don't really know. Just sell me a ticket. Again, that's not going to work. Try starting a business without a clear vision and plan on how to get there. Try working for a company. Many of us have. Try working for a company that has no idea where they are going. It is frustrating. Now, although we cannot know the future, we must focus on getting somewhere. Now, another aspect of mankind being created in the image of God is, again, eternality. There's no need to look for the fountain of youth or the best diet to keep you alive forever. That you will live forever is guaranteed by virtue of being created in the image of God. So the question is not if man is going to live forever, but where man is going to live forever. And beloved, there are only two options. And I told you, this is going to be the shortest point of all. Either heaven or hell. Now, it's really convenient when you remove hell. Then there's only one choice. But whoever rejects the concept of sin and the reality of hell does not have a biblical view of God, the Bible, or man. Only two options. One is the eternal kingdom. The other place is hell. Where there will be darkness, weeping, and gnashing of teeth, according to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 8, verse 12. Also, listen to what Jesus says in Mark chapter 9, verse 42 and 48. And whoever causes one of these little ones to believe to stumble, to, to, who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if they were heavy millstone hung around their neck that he had been, that he cast into sea. And if your ca- hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your hand, two hands, and going to hell into the unquenchable fire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Oh, preacher, but that's just allegorical. It's a parable. No, it's real, my friend. It's real. What a horrible place. Yet people think it doesn't exist, which is exactly what Satan wants them to believe. Hell is real and will be populated by unregenerate people who will spend eternity in torment. Again, being created in the image of God makes mankind eternal, but because of the fall, man is a sinner and by nature. So unless God intervenes a person's life in a person's life by calling and saving them, this is the destination of un, the unregenerate man. But that does not fill the seats in some churches. But yet it's the truth. Stop and think about this. How many of these institutions that call themselves the church are helping populate hell by not being truthful? So we have outlined then, so far, a biblical, what a biblical church must hold in their view of man, the biblical view of the purpose of man, biblical view of the nature of man, a biblical view of the destiny of man, and lastly, a biblical church must hold to a biblical view of the solution 
for man. How can man be restored? Again, given man's fallen nature, the Bible declares that mankind on their own is incapable of doing so. That is a straight answer right now. You can't. In fact, without God intervening, mankind would, not desire, mankind would not desire to live eternally with God in a restored kingdom in the first place. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 18, 10 through 18. It is written, there's no one righteous, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. There's no one who does good. There's not even one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they keep uh, deceiving. The poison of asps under their tongues, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and mystery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God in their eyes. That is a human condition. Paul says that no one in their natural state seeks after God. No one is right enough to deserve God's salvation. And in fact, Paul continues to say in Romans chapter 1, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Beloved, a biblical anthropology therefore recognizes that every single human being after the fall was born in a state of ungodliness and unrighteousness and, 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 and is born as a suppressor of the truth in unrighteousness. Meaning that none of us were born clamoring after God. We were born with a sinful nature that rebels against the very existence of God and his claim over our lives. So let me ask you, beloved, is the solution to man's problems found in man himself? Absolutely not. That's why no amount of psychology, philosophy, yoga, sweat huts, drugs, money, or anything else human beings can come up with will solve humanity's most significant problem, the problem of sin. So, if there's no human solution to the, man, the problem of sin, that man possesses it, it requires a divine solution. And where do we find that? Well, let's just conclude by looking at Ephesians chapter 2. Now we're going to read Ephesians chapter 2, and some of you are going to say, Preacher, you just gone to Ephesians chapter 2, and that says it all. Could have saved a lot of time. And you are dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of this air, the spirit that is now working in the sense of disobedience, among whom, all, all, whom we all also formerly conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, by nature, children of wrath, even as the rest. Oh, but God, being rich in mercy because his great love with which he loves us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us, he seated us with him in the heavenly places by Christ, in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not of, the, not the, of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, nor that, that anyone may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand 
that we would walk in them. Beloved, do you see a regenerated image of God here now? Regenerated anthropology? And how is it that fallen mankind can get to this regenerated state? It is only through the blood of Jesus. It is only through the blood of Jesus. And that's why Paul in Romans chapter 5 verse 19 says, For as through the one man disobedience, the many were appointed sinners, even so through the obedience of one man, Jesus, many will be appointed righteous. So, a church that desires to be biblical or claims to be biblical must possess a high view of God, high view of Scripture, which informs us as how to have a correct view of man, his origin, his purpose, his destiny, his nature, and the answer to his problem. Now, I know many of you have heard this quote before, but I think it's extremely appropriate by D.A. Carson when he says, if God perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us an comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, and our profound rebellion, our death. And therefore, he sent a savior. Beloved, but when you tell somebody that they need a savior, if they don't understand they need saving, it doesn't make sense to them. Therefore, for all of us who claim to be biblical, for all of us who, 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 who claim to possess a biblical anthropology, these five essentials are at the bare minimum. In fact, I suggest to you, as I'm sure most of you have done, when you're searching for a church, you go to their website and you go to the, never mind their kids' ministry, never mind their worship. I think most of us in this room are going to say, I want to know as to what we believe. I want to know what you believe about God, what you believe about his word, and what you say man is about our problem and the solution. These bare minimums are what makes a biblical church biblical. May God continue to bless and to empower us to remain faithful even when the world is against those who call ourselves biblical and all of us who possess a biblical anthropology. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this time. And Lord, we thank you that it is by your grace that we have been given the ability to reason, to understand what you say about yourself in your word and what you say about us in your word. Father, if there are at any time we have had a wrong view of man, we ask that you would forgive us. We thank you for your word that it clarifies and corrects. Lord, we ask that you would be with those churches that are standing strong upon a biblical anthropology, especially as the world seems to be against us. So, Lord, we just thank you so much for this time and ask that you would continue to be glorified as we look at uh, just what you have in store for us for the rest of the morning. In Jesus' name, amen.